Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're reviewing Black Mirror, the British television show. And specifically, we're really going to talk about one episode of Black Mirror, the most recent Christmas special, which is called White Christmas. Right. So there are two seasons of Black Mirror that precede this. Or as the British call them, series. Sure. And those are good. You should watch them. But that would be a lot for us to review in one episode. So we're going to focus on the Christmas special because it's a longer episode. It's got a lot of interesting topics going on in it. And if you haven't seen the Christmas special, you may want to watch it before listening to this because we're going to spoil it. And you can jump right to it because Black Mirror, let's talk about what this show it's is. It's an anthology series. Exactly. So it's not serial. So you, you won't screw anything up if you watch it out of order. It's analogous to the Twilight Zone. Each episode is a different tale with kind of a twisty, you know, punchy ending. And they don't connect directly. They don't even really take place in the same world. They all have kind of a shared tone, but there's almost no continuing concepts from one to the next. And there's no continuing characters. But they're all written by the same guy and they feel very similar. And the reason that it would make sense for us to review this particular show is it is really all about technology and our relationship with it. Right. It's called Black Mirror, and I think they're talking about, you know, the screens on our screen boxes. Right. The way a monitor looks when it's off, and you can see your face in it. But it also conjures a pretty dark and bleak image, and it is a very dark and bleak show in tone. Yes, this is a a straight, like, dramatic tone. It's very dry. There's definitely humor in it. But it's dark humor. It's occasionally like satirically darkly humorous, but every episode has like a a dramatic element as well. And it's got a very dim view of of humanity and our technology. But it's got, I think, a pretty well thought out view for one of these shows. It's actually quite good, I think, at depicting realistic technology. It just always seems to focus on the worst possible outcomes and and qualities of that stuff. Right. So so do you like this show overall, Ted, now that you've seen all of it? Okay, yeah. I've watched the whole thing now, finally. And um, I think my, my overall verdict is yes, I like the show. It's a frustrating show, though, where I feel like some episodes are just vastly superior to others. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of inevitable with that format. Yeah. There's a kind of variety to what they do on the show. They do some stuff that's almost like purely modern day satirical. So it in- integrates technology, but it integrates all present day technology that we already have. Mm-hmm. And there's two of those. And then there's some that are like a dystopian uh, fantasy of like, what if we took a current type of technology and then really pushed it into like the darkest world that could be built around that idea. And then there's like a third kind of thing that it does that's almost much more like purely speculative. That's like about relationships and how they survive some kind of technology. And there's two of those as well. And I think those are the ones that I like the best. I would agree with you. Those would be my my favorite episodes. And we might as well get specific here because if people are going to check out this show. That's right. Well, which ones do we recommend? Just like that's So I, I believe you're talking about the third episode of season one and the first episode of season two. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Those are the ones that have a little more of a naturalistic style and their take on the technology is is a little more realistic. Well, they focus in on one tech each, mm-hmm. basically, but they really focus on some characters. And in both cases, they're characters in a kind of relationship and they explore how the technology affects uh, the possibilities for the relationship. It feels like that same genre that Her is in yeah, or Robot, and, Robot and, Frank. and Frank and these other movies mm-hmm. that are hard to come by, but that is 
essentially our favorite genre, I think, that we're always looking for. Yeah, it's this like sci-fi as a uh, window into humanity. And they actually do, I think, both of those a pretty good job of also like playing out the consequences of some new possibility being created by technologies. Yeah, so if you're going to go ahead and, and watch this stuff in a hurry, watch those two and then watch the Christmas special. And now we're going to talk about the Christmas special and dig into that one because there's just a lot in it. And that's kind of a hybrid of all these styles you're talking about. Right. The Christmas special is almost like a miniature season uh, because it is three stories in one and they're kind of connected by a kind of framing story. Now, I like this episode, but as we usually do with our reviews, we're probably going to get very critical of it. And so... <laughs> right. I, I so just, first off, it was enjoyable. It's worth watching. It is just good. Like yeah. for a cinematic good time, there's good acting. Uh, it stars John Hamm who played uh, Don Draper on Mad Men and will unfortunately like forever be associated with that asshole ad man character. And in this, they play to that type in a really kind of clever way. Mm-hmm. And as we go through, we're going to criticize things about the show for being unrealistic or handling the technology possibly inaccurately. And I think it's worth saying that like we understand that the show doesn't need to be realistic. It is very much a satire and a drama. But I think that those things don't need to be opposed. In other words, I think it's possible to tell a story that captures the truth of what technology is like and where it might be heading while not sacrificing the drama and the satirical elements. So we're going to try to, as we go through, maybe talk about how we might rewrite this episode to sort of appease both of those things, right? To, to still be dramatic and satirical and make the points it wants to make while also maybe being a little more rigorous in the yeah, I don't technology. mind that the pessimistic tone of it. I think actually that's really cool. But yeah, I think sometimes the show prioritizes uh, it, its storytelling to a point where it, it, it stretches um, sort of technical plausibility. We're going to try to call it out for that when it does. So let's jump right into sort of a, a summary of the story because we're going to talk about it in roughly the order that it appears on the screen. Right. Uh, so at the beginning of this episode, you're in a house on Christmas Day. You're not really quite sure where you are. Mm -hmm. There's two males in this house. Yeah. About to have Christmas dinner together. It seems like one of them is preparing something. Right. One of them's cooking and the other one's sitting at the table. Right. Uh, but they don't seem to know very much about each other. There's some vague references to a job that they do together and that they've been living in that house for five years. Yes. But one character is really trying to get the other one to open up, you know, plying them with wine, trying to get them to say something about their backstory because they know nothing about each other. And so as they're making conversation, this particular character who's uh, played by... John Hamm. Right. Launches into his story. He can't get the guy to talk to him, so he just has to open up and tell him, well, why, why is he up in this, uh, this crazy place? This house on Christmas is apparently not a place you want to be. It's a place like where only screwed up people go. Yeah. Or something. So here's his story of how he fell from grace. Uh, and basically what proceeds is a whole, you know, essentially mini episode about this guy being, I guess, an augmented reality pickup artist is what I would describe it Right, as. so he's like a dating consultant yeah. who, like, operates in real time. You feed him your stream of your consciousness, of your, uh, you know, of your vision and sound, and he's in your ear like, um, like a spy in a 70s movie with a walkie-talkie. He's looking things up on a computer. He's giving you 
advice. He's looking at the body language of the people around you. And he's like a real-time dating consultant. Basically. Right. And this is the main technology of all the stories in the Christmas special. Everybody has these cyber eyes. These cyber eyes that have been installed and that once you get them in, you can't take them out apparently. Right. And, but, and they're capable of, you know, broadcasting to other people what you're seeing and doing all the kind of augmented reality stuff we talked about on our last episode. Right. So let's just start with this this service, right? Because we talked about augmented reality right. last episode and we didn't talk about real-time dating advice or social advice. Right. Uh, what do you think of this, Ted? Do you think this is a service that's likely to occur? Uh, I find it unlikely in the form it's presented in this story. I understand why they did what they did, but to me, it seems like the kind of real-time dating advice that you'd maybe have is the automated kind. We've talked about the automated kind, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that you'll get some automated help, especially with face recognition and, and name recognition and small things that, you know, help smooth over social situations. And eventually sure. maybe the assistant, like we've talked about, will get very, very smart to where it's making extremely clever suggestions. Right. Like the, you know, biometric information that you can get from video and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You could be telling if people are lying, if they're nervous, if they're relaxed. But it seems likely we'd have augmented reality before we'd have you know, really good AI, enough that it could be better than a real-time advisor if you could afford one. I mean, I imagine this would be sort of an expensive service potentially. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could basically do this now, right? I guess it maybe take a little bit of uh, extreme subterfuge to like hide the camera in your jacket pocket or something. It's it's represented as like a, um, a next step for the online pickup artist community like you know these guys who are on forums trading secrets to negging women or whatever you know what i'm talking about yeah and like so the way it's portrayed in the story i think it's satirizing that community bringing them out into the future and it's uh because part of the story which we should mention is that okay john ham is the operator he's the one giving the advice he's the cyrano character here and then there's a nerdy dude who's like broadcasting his experience he's out trying to like, out trying to get yeah. laid right but then there's like five other dudes or like eight other dudes who are on a computer screen in john ham's office who are like part of the same experience pool group or something it's not even really explained and they're all also experiencing this and commenting on it to john ham in real time yeah and i like those layers a lot the fact that there's kind of like another audience watching john ham watch the nerdy character right right well there's a way for them to represent this community this like online community is represented as like a, a screen full of dude faces like all laughing at how the girl looks and stuff like that these are all painted as like awful characters in this world of being a pickup artist and trying to get what you want out of women through sort of exploitative tactics. And they're pretty dishonest in the way that they do it. Like, cause again, cause he can Google everything and he right. goes, the basic setup is he crashes an office party for a place that he does not work. Does not work. Yeah. So he has to be able to sort of lie his way through that. And of course he can get assistance from this guy. Now that part I thought was a little weird because there's no moment in which like John Hamm is interacting with him with anything other than audio, right? He's talking to him, narrating, say, look over there, talk to this girl, say this thing, remember the right. lines we rehearsed, but he never like draws on the vision, which is something that you imagine you could do with this technology and like, like circles this person over here, draws an arrow. I feel like that would have been cool. Right. And they kind of underutilized that. Yeah, I agree. It would be possible um, for him to, drop markers in space with his desktop or draw on the vision of the guy or any number of visual interactions that he could do silently. Yeah. And I feel like you would want that. I mean, I do think that there's like potentially a market for this 
service. I think it would be sort of small. But one thing that's weird is, you know, if everybody's got these eyes, right, then presumably at least a lot of people are saving this stuff and broadcasting it if they're not necessarily, you know, part of this weird pickup artist circle. But the other people at the party don't seem aware of this technology or seem to be really utilizing it themselves. Right. Well, uh, you know, as I think is often the case with this sort of story, the writer enjoys imagining um, that his characters are pioneers in something. So I think, you know, the idea is not that it will never catch on, but Actually, it's presented as illegal for some reason, which I didn't really understand. And therefore, you know, you wouldn't assume that people are doing things that are illegal, generally speaking. Right, because when he lies about, there's one guy who kind of interrogates him at the party. He's like, so who are you, right? And he has to come back and, and spin some tale about why he belongs to that office party. Right. And he kind of fakes out this guy using the, you know, real-time advice of the people watching him and John right. Hamm. Right, But... It seems like if everybody had access to that technology, even just like basic facial recognition or like looking up things on Facebook, that like everybody at the office would be like kind of on the same level of information. It would be easy for him to lie in front like he was at the office, but it should also be easy for them to look him up right. and see that he is not in fact at the office or that right. his real name is something else. Or Unless John Hamm's character had already made like fake profiles for him and stuff, which would have been cool to see. Because it's, it's not like you can't get around that, but you have to expect it. You have to do something about it. Right. So like a more advanced version of this script, and I think it would still be pretty easy to follow, would be one that assumes that everybody's using this technology and everybody's right. sort of using this interface to real-time look up people. Which means everybody's just more skeptical in general, which is a sort of interesting paranoid quality. Yeah. yeah. And this guy's just done a better job of that. Like, he's managed... He's got a team working for him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that's cool. Like, and if, obviously, if everybody knows what world they live in, then they're going to know, okay, well, this is what we need to do to fake out the system for long enough for you to go to this party and try to pick up a girl. It's not like it's going to last for months, but it needs to last for an evening. Now, like, in the story, he, he does zero in on a particular girl who he's talking to, and this girl turns out to be somewhat crazy. Yeah. And at one point, you know, she sees him when he thinks she's not watching. She sees him talking to the voices in his head, which are, of course, the pickup artists that are advising him. Right. And we see her see him. So yeah. So we, we know that she's seen him. Yeah. And she makes the assumption that we later learn that he's talking to, you know, that he's voices a schizophrenic, basically. Like a crazy person right. would. Because she hears voices in her head. Right. But the, a little bit of a problem I had with that is, again, I feel like this should be pretty common. I mean, I think if people have these, like, earpieces and these eyes, they're going to be walking around talking to themselves, especially, like, when well, they think no one's in the I room. I don't think this suggests that it's not common, right? Because she's crazy. She could see somebody talking on their cell phone or their magic eyes or whatever they are every night. And then do what she does at the end of this episode, which is, you know, take them home and kill them. It's true. She as a character is flawed enough that maybe it's just so, her own oversight. I think, you know, the satirical point being made here is that certain kinds of technology, communication technology in particular, uh, make you look like you're crazy, right? Which we've uh -huh. all experienced uh, just people walking down the street with a Bluetooth on sometimes look like they're insane. Um, so this is totally, you know, a super now kind of prediction. Um, this is just a more extreme version of it. Uh, and you know, and it's a good joke that like, you know, you can't tell if the person's crazy or not, but it doesn't feel as new as it maybe could as uh, compared to, uh, the rest of the episode. Yeah. I guess the way it plays is cause in that moment you don't know that she's crazy yet. Right. So it feels like it's trying to get you to think, oh no, like she 
she knows she's on to him. She knows that like he's using this service to see what I thought the twist was going to be until it went, turned out that to be that. Yeah. I thought it was going to be that she was using a service too and had used it successfully on him. Well, that would be interesting. So let's let, right. Yeah. That was what I was expecting. And then I was pretty disappointed when she just like killed him and turned out to be crazy. Yeah. I think that the ending was like not <laughs> as exciting dramatically as it could be. So let's talk about how we would rewrite this. One, there should be like more use of the overlays where he's like drawing tactical maps on his vision and stuff of like sure. what girl to talk to because sure. that would be funny. Yeah, like Xing out girls' faces. Or, yeah. Yeah, just doing like, because you want these guys to be like as offensive as possible. That's, yeah. That's the joke. So like, let's make them, let's make them worse. Exactly. Well, yeah. and that would be one visual yeah. interesting way to do that. Sure. Right? And then yeah. the, you know, the second thing is that I, I feel like if everybody was savvier with this tech in general... But he wins because he has a team. Sure. Then I think that's also more interesting. That's interesting. As opposed to him yeah. appearing to have the only, be the only person that's, you know, able to utilize the tech in this way. Well, and part of it is the, the that's the viewpoint of the story, which is that he's immoral for using this tech, you know? And like this tech is wrong. And so everybody else is not using it. Yeah, let's talk about that. Is this tech wrong? I mean, I, I, I <laughs> we're we're obviously jumping right in, like with the assumption that it's not. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that it turns out later, much much later in the movie, as we'll discuss, that this service is illegal, as you mentioned, and I don't right. see why it would be illegal. Now, I mean, everyone agrees that you know pickup artists are are douchey and maybe reprehensible humans. It doesn't mean that what they do is illegal. And not in this country or in Sweden. I think maybe should be. I mean. I don't know. Like, I get. I think getting real time dating advice is like kind of a fine line. Like, I mean, what is that? I don't. Well, like how different is that from going to the bathroom and texting your friend, which people do all the time now? Right. Right. I mean, it's a difference in degree, but I don't know that it's a difference in kind. Well, and like, it doesn't just depend what the advice is. I mean, if the advice is this kind of like stereotypically awful advice, like, oh, you should attack her self-esteem so she feels bad, like this weird manipulative stuff that, you know, is thrown around on these internet forums. Right. Or if it's just like, what if it's like positive sounding advice, like, hey, it seems like you guys have a common interest about this. Why don't you pursue this line of conversation? And like, how would you go about distinguishing between like the more benevolent type of yeah, advice or, and the more or, sinister or type of like advice? Or just like a language processor that's like, you've said three statements in a row. Why don't you ask a question? <laughs> Well, that's the automated version right? of this. But I feel like that would be super helpful. And uh, and you, I don't think anybody would have an ethical problem with that. Like, Yeah. What happens is I think that the you know the author of this, they want to attack this pickup artist culture because... Well, it's, and that's fair, right? It's, well, it's, and it's a fun target. But right. I think the result is that they end up sort of breaking the reality of the world to me. Like, I don't, Right. It yeah. doesn't quite 100% make sense. And uh, I think... Right. Oh, you know what I think uh, makes it creepy is the fact that they are uh, violating the privacy of the partner, right? Like, they make mm. a big deal in the story about, oh, but you're not going to watch him have sex with the girl after he takes her home, right? You sign off at that point, right? Right. And the guy goes like, yes. Like, on the voiceover, he, sa he says to the guy back in the framing story oh yes of course i signed off but then there's like an ironic layer to that which is we're watching him in the flashback sure and he does not sign off and in fact all the guys on the screen of guys are all watching them have sex or start to have sex or whatever until she kills him and that's why they actually witness his death is because they were trying to perv out and watch this sexual encounter which she didn't know ostensibly was being filmed 
So there's, I think that's where the creepy element comes in. Yes. Okay. And they cross a line, which is that like at the moment that he doesn't turn off, doesn't blink off his feed for them and she starts undressing or whatever, you know, he should inform her at that point. That makes... At least in the state of California, I think you have to. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because there is actually, like, legal precedent for that. Like, right. Like, where if you're recording someone, you're supposed to inform them that you're recording them. Right. Now, I, I think... Now, if you're in a public party... There's no assumption of that, necessarily. Right, but when you're in somebody's house with them and you're, like, having, you know, taking off your clothes, the assumption is they're not recording you. Okay, well, that clarifies that for me. So, if we imagine that that's the law that was broken. So, like, no law was no, broken. No, I think... They say it's an illegal service, but I really? think the reason they i think that that's the actual ethical line that they cross and that this world has condemned the services on account of the possibility of crossing that line it doesn't really technologically make sense though to me because can't the guy who's broadcasting right why can't he just click it off from his eyes like it seems like of course you would have the ability to share your feed with others. Well, I think that he can, but they talk him out of it because they have, the implication is that they all watched each other. Like they all went through training together and they've all done these like runs to so go and pick like, up right, women. They've, they've, they've mutually agreed to do this. So like he watched other people and now he can't click off because then he'd be sort of he'd like, be a dip. he wouldn't be reciprocating right. on the deal. Right. So that maybe makes sense. So like, yeah, I guess if we were to rewrite this, we'd make it more explicit that the illegal part is when they get back to her house. Right, right. And that it's, um, they've only outlawed these things because part of the deal is you make this blood oath with your brothers that you're all going to share sex videos, basically. It's like, that's what's illegal about this service, not the advice part. You could have a totally legal advice service. Well, the legal advice service has to be used with the knowledge of other people, or at least in a public space. Right, right, exactly. It can't follow you into your house, basically. Right. 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 So I think, you know, I mean, this world, and we can talk about this more in the later stories, but this world seems to have pretty intense privacy protections in general, which is a choice. Right, which that reminds me of another thing, which is that there's a moment at which they try to look up the profile of the girl that he's hitting on, I right. believe. And, and she her profile's locked. It. locked. Right. right. And while that can happen if you're trying to look up someone on Facebook, in a world in this future, you might imagine that there'd be lots of avenues to look somebody up, especially if you had a team of intelligent people on pursuing that task. Yeah. That simply someone's locking one profile and flicking one setting in one place. That wouldn't necessarily be much of a stumbling block to finding out a lot about that person. At least that's how things seem to work in, in today's world and in a world with more cameras and camera eyes everywhere. Right. You'd think that that would be how things were unless we're assuming a really intense set of privacy regulations, which I think the story actually ultimately is, right? Yeah, I think that is what they're hinting at. They seem to have a pretty draconian privacy regime, and this woman who's crazy has taken advantage of it to try to hide her insanity, I imagine, right? So there is a kind of story logic to how they do it, and I would buy the blocked sort of profile on the main, whatever, you know, the Facebook of the future is. But then they keep digging further. Uh, as a obstacle... Uh, that slows him down at a key moment. I would buy that for like dramatic reason. Right. But yeah, it seems like they should then be able to find a back channel where they at least get some partial information pretty quickly after that, you know, um, which is not a place they go in the story. So, right. And that would be another place where you could show that everybody's competent with this technology, but they're like super competent because they're able to go that extra level. Right. Well, and they had to scramble in this case, but they yeah. still were, were able to find something. Right. Okay. So at, at the end of this, uh, 
this rather dark story where the uh, the guinea pig for this advice, you know, gets inadvertently into a situation where he's part of a like a murder suicide. Yes, where this you know woman that he goes home with, you know, forces him to drink poison essentially. Yes. Well, and and crucially, John Hamm is watching this happen like from first person and is like sort of living through this death that he's essentially responsible for. Right, um, which he doesn't seem too upset about. Yeah, he seems like kind of worried. He seems like cur- concerned about like the legal ramifications because he in- instructs like everybody, right. his whole crew that's watching this, to, to like wipe everything. They have yeah. to burn all their yeah stuff and yeah, yeah. But then we return to you know John Ham in this weird right, house we'll go, on Christmas. Go back to the like cabin, uh, Snowden cabin framing story, and. You know, so that was sort of his tale of, whoa, that was sort of the thing that got him into trouble, the reason that he's now in this cabin with this other guy. And then the the discussion shifts now to John Hamm's job, his actual job. And he starts to talk about what it is that he did. And what he did, basically, is he was like an orientation supervisor for newly produced emulated brains, right? Yes. Okay, so we jump into a new story where there's this technology that looks like an egg and has a little light on it. And is they call it a cookie? Called a cookie, right? And uh, a cookie is um, a an emulation of your brain. So, so you think that's a reference to like internet cookies? It must be. I think it is. Yes, I think they liked the term cookie from browsers, and it's a funny word. I give them credit for it. I like it. I think it's a good name, and it looks a little like yeah, it looks like an egg or or something like that. And uh, this is a technology that we've seen in science fiction before, but this is a pretty solid, I think, depiction of it. And uh, we've talked a bit about Robin Hanson and his ideas about emulated brains. This is sort of similar to what he talks about. It's a, an emulation of the entire brain, a copy of a, of a person. Well, what, it, what we see happen is that uh, a woman goes in for a procedure yeah. and she gets uh, something implanted for a period of time in her, in her brain, I guess, it's like a small little bead-shaped thing. It's not, right. And that apparently, while in her brain, sort of copies the state of her brain, the right. connections between neurons, you know, this is sort of hand-waved away in this. Yeah. But it, it, it copies everything right. it needs to know. It's an implant that does the scanning, About basically. her, exactly. And it takes a period of time, which makes a certain amount of sense. And, and then, then they remove that. Right. And then they put it into this little egg-shaped thing, and now we have a copy of her right. uh, inside a computer. So basically, the egg-shaped thing is, I guess, a computer that can read the information that's in the little mm-hmm. implant. So, and the implant is essentially the software. It's it's the map of your brain. Okay, now, so let's start with the obvious first point that needs to be made, which is that in this world, it's possible to emulate people, but uh, all of life in the economy apparently was not immediately transformed by this tech, which is what would actually happen, right? How much do we actually see of the outside world, though? I mean, it's like we see uh, one rich lady's house. And we see him at work. We see people on the street walking around at the end of the episode. I mean, a lot of this is filtered through subjective descriptions of, like, unclear veracity. So I think that you could give the writer of this some wiggle room on that. But I think if you could emulate human brains, I mean... Well, the thing they're using them for is a little bit odd. Let's talk about that, right? Yeah. like, okay, so we're following this particular emulation. She is the one who's created... Uh, from this woman's uh, implant that we meet at the beginning. She wakes up, right, in mm-hmm. a uh, in kind of a white room, you know, as as you do when you're a simulated being. Right. I mean, we've all sort of seen this before. Yeah. And she's freaked out, and John Hamm appears, and he is the guy who's going to say, like, okay, you know, you're a sim, and this is how the world works, and this is what you're for. And he tells her that basically what she's for is to be 
like a silent assistant for her uh, self. Yeah, this is something we actually discussed uh, at the ending of our assistant episode is the notion of like maybe a good assistant for you would be somehow a copy of you because it would know your preferences. And that's sort of how this is painted. Would be able to predict your preferences. Yeah, so she makes a copy of herself that goes inside of an egg that is then going to handle her appointments and run her house and make her toast for her exactly how she likes it. Because right, she likes toast underdone. That's a that's a major plot point, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, this use of emulated brains is relatively small, Again, if this was a real technology, I mean, you'd be putting these things to work on pretty much every task out there. And and it, again, wh- hopefully someday we'll have Robin Hanson on the podcast and he'll talk about his vision for this. Uh, but it's pretty clear that one way or another, like, this wouldn't just be a toy for rich people, right? No, this would be like a huge transformative technology yeah. that would immediately get commoditized and spread everywhere because it'd be so freaking valuable. But I think one thing Robin Hanson would say would be like, you're not necessarily going to be the best assistant for you. Somebody who's like ultra happy being an assistant is going to be the best assistant for you. And that person is going to just get copied once or maybe 10 times and then get replicated everywhere. You're going to buy Microsoft assistant or whatever. And it's going to be a copy of just like the world's best assistant. Everybody's going to have that person. In other words, somewhere on planet earth (laughs) right now, there is somebody who is like born to be the super assistant. Yeah. who, who Who has that personality type, who does it well, who knows how to learn people's preferences, who loves doing it who could totally get over the existential terror of realizing they're a copy, someone who is just perfectly suited for this job. And all the humans on planet Earth, there's got to be this person, and you just copy that person a gazillion times and make them everybody's assistant. Yeah. And you wouldn't even have to set them up. You'd set them up once, and then you'd copy them post-orientation. Yeah. Done. And and John Hamm would not have a job. Right, right, right. And the whole idea that you need to orient each of them individually is like a little bit confusing because since these are copies, can't you just, you know, orient them while they're being made? Like you tell the person, this is what it's going to be like when you become a SIM copy and blah, 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 blah. And then you make the copy and the copy already knows it. <laughs> yeah, this is my problem. And this is a problem I had with Advantageous as well, which is that both this and that movie tend to have this like fuzzy concept of memory when it comes to copying the brain, Right. Now, in this case in particular, the memories are very important. You want this copy to have your memories so that it's you, so that it knows your preferences and runs your house how you want it. Right. But then why does this thing not remember going in for the operation to make the copy in the first place? And this would be my biggest rewrite right from the beginning. Right. Is that I understand that it helps maybe the viewing audience to get walked through, but there is literally no reason why John Hamm has to be like, think of a Xerox machine. You're like a copy. He like really like talks her through it in a dumb way. Right, right, right. Like as if her world doesn't even have these things. Like he could just say like, you know how everybody makes copies now? You're one of those. But I mean, really what should happen is he should be like, you're the the copy that you just paid for. Right. And she's like, well, yeah, I just paid for it. I'm not the copy. What are you talking about? Right, right, and, right. And they could have a really awesome, interesting so, conversation. Which is exactly how it's handled in the excellent story, The Wedding Album by David Marusa. Sure. And that was exactly what I was going to say, is that like he's got the much better idea of how sims work, which is that they just don't know that they're not sims for the first few minutes. So somebody still does have to come in and orient them, but all they have to say is, you guys are the sims. And eventually you're going to be like, oh God, I am. I did this to myself. And and you'll put it together. Oh, I'm the sims, you know, like, and then that's, that's, I think a, uh, you know, much more realistic beat. 
Well, I think that emotional beat of realizing you did this in a way to yourself is fascinating and totally, I mean, I think that's a great dramatic opportunity that this story doesn't take advantage of at all. Right. Because it doesn't, I guess it's more concerned with just explaining this to the audience. Yeah. But I think people would get it. I think you could, through this conversation, you could get out the same exposition while making, having this more realistic version of sort of continuous memory. Yeah, no, I know. I really like that scene um, in Wedding Album where uh, they do exactly that. And they realize sort of belatedly that they are the Sims. They figure it out because they can't touch each other. <laughs> and uh, then somebody comes in and tells them and they're like, oh, okay, this makes sense. And one of them's happy about it. The other one's not so happy. They also, in that story, they ask the Sims if they like being alive and they delete them if they are unhappy and just do it again, which is a pretty interesting idea. Because you don't want to have a sim that's unhappy all the time. It's like, I like the idea that if, since those are momentary captures, they don't happen over weeks in that story. Uh, I like the idea that, you know, sometimes you're in a moment of existential terror and sometimes you aren't. Right. Well, I think in Wedding Album, there's a bit of another concept going on where like the the state in which they're captured is like sort of... Sort of persistent for them. Yeah. So if you're captured... Because they're not that complex of a model. That's the idea. Yeah. Like, you know, they they capture the sort of surface state of the brain, but not every complexity uh, of its its wiring. Which that is maybe the, the area where I find that less plausible. Again, I feel like... I don't think anybody really understands how this technology would work. Yeah, I mean, it's but hard I to think say. like the sort of first assumption that Robin Hansen makes that it's just basically just a perfect copy, and we don't necessarily know how to like change the dials on it that well. Right. We're just sort of like taking the connections as they lay and porting them to another substrate, and it's sort of a black box where we we can't like erase certain memories, and we can't necessarily like take a halfway copy. It's like either a whole copy or not. Right. I mean, I feel like that's a good first assumption for thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And it's there's plenty of dramatic material there. Well, that seems like what will happen first, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing, there's like another level of sort of unnecessary exposition happening too, right? Which is that John Hamm is relaying what his job is. And again, the other character should kind of understand this tech himself, right? I mean, again, if they're in this world together, they must know that rich people have these emulated cookies. assistants, you know? Yeah. They-, they would have heard of cookies and probably he would not need to tell him he could just be like, I'm a cookie ambassador. And the guy would be like, oh, so you like talk to the new cookies. Right. And he'd be like, yep. <laughs> and that'd be the end of that sequence. <laughs> no, and I realize you got you to gotta get the exposition out for the benefit of the audience. Yeah. But again, I think this is a place where trusting the audience a little more, working just a little bit harder in the writing, you could, you could pull that off. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm always disappointed when it seems like people didn't even try to do that. So, yeah, let's talk about how he trains her, right? Okay, yeah, because this is really where the thing fell apart for me. I was willing to give it pretty much everything we've talked about so far. Right. These things don't need to be perfect to be entertaining. But he trains her in a way that can only be described as uh, torturous. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to... Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Uh, of course, torture is really easy when you are a you know a human and you have a a sentient machine in your hands that mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have any special like access to the internet or anything like that. Uh, you can pretty much do anything to it. And some of the things they show it doing uh, include basically putting it in solitary confinement for like arbitrary amounts of time. Okay. Yeah, so she's in a white room with nothing to do, and he can just, in the span of a couple minutes for him... Right, he can set a timer, basically, 
of like a thousand years or whatever, and it'll just go by in, in an arbitrary amount of time. Now, so, I, I think he puts her through a week first and then six months or something. And right. It, and it basically breaks her. He escalates really fast to a really long amount of time. And as we all know, uh, solitary confinement is super psychologically damaging. Um, I mean, that's really, really horrific. Um, well, when he discusses how, you know, a part of his job is like, pushing them far enough that they will agree to do the job. Because the reason he has to do this is she's protesting. She's like, well, screw this. I'm not going to be, you know, the assistant for myself and just like sit here like serving her. Right. Uh, and, and he says, oh, really? Like, would you rather do nothing? And that's when he makes her sit in solitary confinement. And that eventually persuades her that it's better to do something, even a job she doesn't like, than no job. Right. But the thing is, you know, he talks about how that is a fine line, how like that's sort of his skill is that he knows how to push them far enough that they break, but don't completely snap and go crazy, which I guess, obviously that's possible. psychology of a plantation owner or, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty awful. These are, these computer programs are basically, you know, they operate along human rule sets. So you basically deal with them with psychology and you uh, torture them into um, submission, which again, just seems like a really bad recipe for a good assistant. It seems like a better assistant would be somebody who's happy doing it, either because you managed to take a picture of yourself while you were thinking happy thoughts in the Marisex story, or because you bought the super assistant 9000, who's just predisposed to enjoy that work. It, It a little bit suffers from something that I think Black Mirror sometimes suffers from in general, which is just unnecessary cruelty. Like, cruelty that i can't even see really who benefits from this cruelty i don't know why the world would choose to be this cruel yeah i mean this over when we did our uh, list of the top 10 sort of ways that sci-fi fails one of them was the boot in the face dystopia and this is like yeah it's not necessarily like this is very boot in the face right it's this very is boot in the face unnecessary cruelty for the sake of just I don't know what, just being... It's, it creates some drama, for sure, but I feel like... Well, to me, it diminishes it, because I, I find this stuff more creepy and more affecting when it's more relatable. And I think our own world has a lot of cruelty in it, but the cruelty is either organic, institutional cruelty that's evolved mm-hmm. out of things that used to make sense into things that no longer do, or... Like the indifference of institutions and yeah, things, yeah. And just like the calcification of various processes and institutions, right? Yeah. Or it's cruelty where I can clearly see who benefits, right? Like somebody's getting rich while other people are getting a boot in the face. But there's there's nobody who's just sitting there slamming people in the face for no reason. Right. So let's talk about one reason you might torture her. You know, she knows a very valuable secret, right? Right. So then, sure. then someone has something to gain from it. Right. If it's like Inception, the beginning of Inception, before they flip it, when they're trying to do the dream heist, and she's like got something locked up in her brain and now they're going to try to get it out of her. You might torture her, or you might just try to trick her with a simulation of something. Right. So, you know, you simulate, like, a full environment around her that includes, like, her best friend or somebody that she trusts the secret with already and try to just get her to say it again and hope that she doesn't realize everything is simulated. I mean, there's a million different ways to get a secret out of somebody if you have a copy of them. Well, another general thing I want to say about the eye world is, like, if you have the magic eyes... Where these robot eyes these that robot everybody eyes. has, yeah. Then wouldn't 
everyone just be more skeptical of like everything they see all the time because there'd always be the possibility that what you were seeing wasn't entirely real. Well, and we talked about that somewhat last episode. Yeah. yeah. It's just like turns everyone into Philip K. Dick. Or it's like, you know, the way that you just don't trust everything on TV now, right? Or like when you see an ad, like right. you have a little bit of a sense like this ad is selling me something. I didn't right. shouldn't take this all 100% seriously, right? I mean, right. maybe a small child does or... Or like there are certain, you know, there are those people on YouTube who on every... Thing, even if it has obvious edits or like yo is that real you know <laughs> right but, I mean you can still fool people but, but most but people yeah. are savvy enough media wise right right that to they're not kind of believe yeah. what they see on screens exactly yeah. and yeah. so you'd have to treat your whole life that way you'd be like well I don't know if this is I mean which could be maddening actually I mean it's a I don't know I think you'd just it'd just be a level of skepticism that you just sort of adopt well and you know what that's something that uh, again I mean Robin Hanson talks about so many of these ideas that, you know, you would have basically ways of signaling to other people that you know that, hey, we're real. Right. I'm talking to you right now, and I want to know, <laughs> I want to know, well, hopefully, right? And so right now, I know that the real Ted is going to use some pre-agreed signal that's somehow encrypted or something that, like, no one else would have access to, right? Like, you're going to do some hand gesture or something, and you're going to do it sort of every once in a while, like, once a day to kind of, like, constantly give confirmation that I'm in real reality. <laughs> that like it's not Skinner Darkly and I haven't been like replaced by Keanu Reeves in a yeah. blanket. Now the problem is that sort of like <laughs> signal could be co-opted very easily, one could imagine. So I mean it's it's again it's a it's a security it's challenge. It's an arms race, right? Yeah. yeah, it's just another arms race. Yeah. One thing I do like is that, you know, so the the world she appears in is like a white room, but it also has like a control panel. And there's one little yeah. moment that I like where she's, he tells her to, you know, cause he's trying to train her for her job. Like, Oh, you should, you should do your job. You should make toast for your owner. And she's like, well, well, how do I do it? And he's like, you know, just push the buttons. Like they're just symbolic anyways. Right. And I liked that. I like the idea that there's just. Right. She presses a big red button then and the toast starts yeah. toasting. And it's the idea is that like, it's her intention is creating the toast, but the button gives her something to do. I thought that that was a nice touch. If you took a real person that was used to being in real space and simulated them, you'd have to probably give them these constructs like buttons and things, I think, in order to make them feel comfortable. But of course, it would be all bullshit underneath the surface. And I think that that's just fascinating to think about. Right. Well, I guess you could spend time putting an actual interface together, but I, I like the idea that they don't need that, that they have direct access to her thoughts because she's software anyway. Right. And... So her thoughts can just control the the toaster, and this is purely for her to feel more comfortable. Now, one thing about the cruelty uh, that we talked about earlier yeah. is that is at least acknowledged, right? The the character that John Hamm is talking to yeah. igno- <laughs> mentions that, oh, this is kind of terrible, yes. right? And then there's like a weird interaction that I didn't love where, where John Hamm says, oh, I can tell you're a good person because you think that. And then he goes on to, to take it a step further. He says, yeah. most people wouldn't say that. Most people would just say, ah, fuck her. She's code. And I did not agree with that. Like, I, no. I, I really can't imagine a world in which no. the vast majority of people are callous enough to feel this way about people these. People love their VCRs. Yeah. That is utter nonsense. I mean, pe- people love things that are clearly not alive. So something that looks like a person something and is capable is, of screaming in terror. Yeah, something that looks like you Yeah, and says, like, I'm unhappy. Why did you create me? And you are going to be devastated. <laughs> Yeah, which is just the level of cynicism that this show embraces, which is that, like, in this world, I right. guess everybody would it's be... It's a yeah, very cold future in Black Like, Mirror. you know, fuck her, she's code. But I don't I don't think that would be a dominant view in any kind of world that I can imagine. No, you know? no. Even if people acted that way, I don't think anyone would talk that way. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, even in a world that was actually that cruel, I think people would pretend they weren't that cruel. I just, I just, I, for, for signaling purposes. So, going whatever. back to legal yeah. frameworks, I mean, this, this would probably be illegal, right? I mean, aside from it not being necessary, like, I, I think there's a high chance that. What would be illegal? That torturing a simulated. Tor- torturing being, Sims? Yeah, I don't know. Will torturing Sims be illegal? I think that there is a high chance of that at least being a major topic of discussion in society. I would just think, like, who would write the program that tortures the sim, you know? Like, you have to write... Well, in this case, it's just fast-forwarding time, so that's not really a specialty torture program. It's just something that would presumably ship standard with... Like if you if you speed them up to double speed so that they can do twice as much work, that totally makes sense. But if you crank it to one thousand, shouldn't it go like warning? This is going to drive your sim insane. Are you sure you want to do this? Click yes or no. Or well, I mean, the other part of it is that they're in an empty environment, right? You're giving them, you're you're depriving them, right? Which again, you could see why you might have control over the environment, so you might be able to make it empty, but. It might say, we recommend at least three default objects for your sim to play with. Would you like us to place them now? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, this seems like stuff we can do with software environments now. Why, why wouldn't that be available then? Yeah, it seems like the software designer, for legal reasons, would write that in. And then maybe people would circumvent that, like cruel Sure, people, like he but- could be a hacker who has come up with his own tool that allows him to really fuck with these characters. I mean, one thing that is really interesting about this, even though I didn't honestly love this bit, but it is cool because it starts to get into the possibility of like simulated hell kind of, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea that like I can just trap you in this white room for an indefinite amount of time. So I'm effectively God and you're effectively my subject. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that is a possible future is frightening. And that's all he does to her in this. But really, you could also imagine him, you know, uh, causing her immense pain. And mm-hmm. causing her to keep conscious during that pain, mm-hmm. uh, causing her immense pleasure, mm-hmm. uh, even like causing her to have, you know, orgasms or, you know, whatever. Like, uh, Which already, that would be a funnier like, like orientation sequence, wouldn't it? Like, if he was using positive reinforcement? Well, that's the thing is that that could be part of it even. Like, uh, you know, if I wanted to convince somebody I was a god and I was having that kind of, I would definitely want to mix pleasure and pain, right? I would want to show them I can be good for you or bad for you, so you should want to be on my good side, right? I mean, it seems like that's sort of the argument God is making to man. This seems like this would be part of the standard <laughs> tool set of this, like, sort of emulation yeah. orientation So, like, every advisor. time you do what I want, this is what's going to happen. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Every time you do what I don't want, this is what's going to happen. Ah, that's terrible. Okay, now we understand. <laughs> and for <laughs> two hours a day when your owner's asleep, you can go into, like, pleasure VR world and, like, just hang out. That's you know, right. Provided you do your job. Right, and, you know, we can pay you VR credits or something if we find that that's... Uh, encouraging of people to do their work or whatever it is, you know? It seems like we will have VR assistance, but we will not need this crazy, cruel world to have them. Well, let's talk about how this could be better, too, because part of the setup, right, is that this woman, we know very little about her, but we know that she's extremely wealthy. We know that she basically doesn't have to work or anything. She know that she, We know that she's privileged. We, we, I think we're meant to dislike her because she's sort of like, Right before she goes into the operation, she she's complains kind of a, about her toast. She's kind of a jerk about her toast and sort of like there's a bit of like a class issue thing that's sort of suggested where she's just like sort of, you know, bossing around the people below her. Like, I want my toast a certain way and I'm like not going to take anything less, you know. And like, she, you know, she just seems like the kind of person that they're setting you up to dislike. And then I think it's supposed to feel 
like a satisfying twist or like comeuppance for her when all of a sudden she has to be that peon serving herself, the kind of person that normally she treated like garbage before. I like your pitch better than the way I experienced it. Really? Yeah. I think that's what it's going for. I think it's supposed to be a role reversal where like the master becomes the servant. Yeah. I think that would have been better served by not having her... Not being so mean to her. So, because that overshadows it. That's right. The thing. And if, having her so dramatically, intensely broken, too. I mean, I think the presentation of her of her breaking down was like seemed like it was calculated to really maximize sympathy for her, which which kind of undermines the story that you're presenting. That's true. And I think it would have been more amusing, too, if like it wasn't so bad, right, what she was being offered. But because of who she is, right. she couldn't fathom that she would be a servant, right? Right, right? So, like, it's not so bad. There's a little bit of pleasure mixed with the pain and so on. It's, like, halfway decent. But because of that character being, you know, who she is, it's it's very upsetting to her personally. I think that would have been more interesting. Right, right. Let's move on now to, like, what happens next, right? Which is, with, again, we return to the framing story, to the right. the cabin, uh, snowed in cabin on Christmas. Where John Hamm is talking to uh, the other guy who's played by Rafe Spall, and he finally gets Rafe Spall's character to open up and tell him his story. Right, this guy's been completely mysterious and silent up until this point. Right, but now he finally starts to, in a kind of circuitous way, tell his tale. And it starts with the fact that the... The father of his girlfriend never thought he was good enough for her. And uh, so we see the father's house and they're visiting and uh, the father's cold to him and and warm to his daughter. That's where the story starts. Basically, his relationship goes awry. Right. Basically, he finds a pregnancy test, right? Mm -hmm. And he confronts the girlfriend and says, are you pregnant? I'm happy. And she reacts by getting angry with him and blocking him with her eye software. And uh, the way that they show this is that uh, whenever they look at each other, uh, the other person is covered in like a gray masking, like a flat gray mask that's overlaid over Yeah, so you can't see or hear her And their voices are like muffled Mm -hmm. and slowed down to the point where they're unintelligible, but you can sort of tell that they're talking. So it's kind of like... So let's dig into that for a little bit before we go on with the story. Because this is a clear metaphor. This is not something that's really going to happen. Right. Well, and there's an interesting extra detail that's thrown in there, which is that all pictures of her are also blocked. So he can open his own desk drawer with his own photo album and look at a picture that's like a physical picture that he took, and she'll still be blocked out in that picture. Right. Or even like a photo, like what about a digital photo that he would have on his computer? I think same thing is implied. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that she has like basically licensing control over her image can reach into his eyes and the operating system running his eyes and actually censor his vision. Yeah. I mean, that indicates a social contract where like everybody's on the same system and you all agree to sort of abide by these rules. And if somebody institutes a block of you, you are never able to see them again under any circumstances. Right. And this is to me the most frightening thing that uh, Black Mirror has portrayed yet. (laughs) Because this is something that I've actually thought about and worried about. Now, I think this level of extreme uh, personal image rights is probably pretty unlikely to ever happen. Well, the draconian society you'd need to enforce something like that is like pretty hard to imagine. But I definitely worry about this direction. I worry about, you know, if a lot of people are on the same OS or the same couple of OSs and or there's some sort of legal framework that uh, is pushing for this sort of thing, that you could end up in a world where maybe you could circumvent these kinds of blocks, but it would be 
it would be a pain to do so. And this is like one of those things that like overlaps with intellectual property, right? Because that's one of the reasons you might end up in this society, I feel like. I, I, it seems highly unlikely that people would agree to make this available for the purposes of blocking. I think that would be like a, more of a, a side effect. I feel like if we ever had this kind of intense legal framework for control over one's image, it would probably come from business interests, right? And specifically maybe, you know, intellectual property law, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't really see a path to having this sort of technology. I'm just trying to imagine how we could get there. (laughs) But I I, I hear what you're saying, but I I, I think like... let me put it this way, right? I, I get, let's say I get installed my cyber ears, right? And the cyber ears run the standard OS. And there's more than one OS, but let's say like, it's like today, there's like two and a half, you know? There's like sure. two that are like major competitors and there's like a Linux or something that, you know, only like a few people use. Sure. So I've got one of these standard OSs. It's a big company. It's a big target for lawsuits. So they're not like going to do anything like two against the grain, right? They're going to follow certain rules. And for example... You could write an app for these cyber ears that like scrambles music that you haven't paid for. I suppose this is a thing that could theoretically be written. Oh Jesus! Right. Yeah. So th- this is how I'm saying. They'd you- helpfully install that at the factory for you and, and lock it down so that you can't uh, easily change it out. Right. This is how I'm saying you get to this dark future. Right. But you get there through business interests, not through. Right. And then like- it's like a matter of you pay for access, but it's not a matter of you being blocked really from anything uh, other than if you're poor, I suppose. Right. And they'd be blocking you from things that's content that presumably somebody owns, right? It would be content that presumably powerful entities like corporations owned at first, but then that could eventually maybe filter down to the social sphere to where you and I own, right. well, you know, our own image, uh, even if it's not, I don't know about you and I owning our own image so much, but like Facebook owns your list of friends and they are not above charging uh, at least pages uh, to reach those friends with content. And you could imagine in the future, you might have to pay to reach your friends even personally, you know, like that sounds maybe plausible. Well, and certainly, well, within a single service, like a single Facebook service. So if you want people to hear you, you know, you have to pay extra or whatever it is. Right. So I, I could see that. But yeah, I, I, I don't really see a voluntary blocking uh, mechanism that literally blacks out people's faces and makes them impossible to hear. That just seems like no one will build that and implement it. <laughs> I, it seems like it requires us to uh, all agree to far too much. Right. I, I mean, the, the moment that that got discussed... Uh, everybody would simultaneously have a vision in their head that wasn't that different from this Black Mirror episode. Yeah, and, and, they'd, and like, they'd realize that's a world we don't want to live in. Yeah. And our consumers also don't want to live in, I so mean, let's not do it. Right, I mean, blocking is going to work in the future the way it works now, which is that if you have private feeds, you can make them... Uh, not go to that particular person. Yeah, you can require um, some sort of authentication or something. Right, and, yeah. but your public stuff is still going to be public and people are having more and more public stuff. So, you know, if you have a stalker or something, you might put less things in the public domain and, and keep the private domain away from your stalker. But it, it's not like uh, if they see you in a public place, the, their glasses are going to be obligated to block out your face. I just don't think we'd ever have a, a world where that was like a voluntary feature. I mean, I guess I could maybe imagine a world where that's a court assigned punishment, uh, the way that restraining orders are now. Mm-hmm. Um, like, let's say you're stalking someone or you commit violence against them and then you get uh, convicted of that. They will, uh, you know, often uh, tell you you can't be within a certain number of feet of them, something like that, right? So, I mean, sure, that could be enforced by the system 
kind of voluntarily like we can either send you to jail or you can agree to this um, software being installed on your thing that like if you get within that amount of space of them it will beep until you leave and it will tell us if you don't turn around right away and um, it will broadcast what you're seeing to us uh, if it starts be etc etc so you know you could uh, imagine that as a punishment well and that happens in black mirror so we'll get to that shortly right but i mean you're saying like yeah the government punishment version of this is plausible to some extent more so than the than the like voluntary i can block you because you offended me thing right well that's the thing is that he's a jerk to her in this argument but uh, of course there's a twist where they reveal that that's not really even why he you know she blocks him for her own reason but neither the reason that she has nor the reason we think she has um merits doing this right uh, would yeah would would be a criminal offense or anything like that i think he calls her a bitch or something like that's as bad as it gets i mean yeah he uh he disrespects her in in a pretty intense way like uh, i think he deserves to be broken up with uh, over the fight but i didn't think it made sense to block him and then there's of course a reason for that i mean we're spoiling this so i may as well say let's just jump into it yeah but like you know it turns out that she is in fact pregnant but not with his kid she's been sleeping with his uh boss or buddy which they reveal because that guy is a different race he's asian and then the kid uh, when we finally see the kid is a half asian kid it was funny because i was like oh look there's like an asian guy here's some diversity and then i was like oh no that's just there for plot reasons (laughs) it's there for plot (laughs) and yeah it's like you know it's it's fine and it works um it's a visual thing but yeah it would have been cooler if there wasn't there just for the plot but uh it, it seems like such a strange choice to me just like like on a character level, I find the whole story a little bit hard to believe uh, because it seems like what she would actually do is just tell him because the only reason to lie to him about who the father is is if she wanted to, you know, get an abortion and then stay with him, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she should just break up with him anyway. They haven't presented any reason that these two are together that's like not for love. But I think so, that's the, the thought experiment here that is maybe the most interesting is one where like you have one of these social situations where both things are going to be difficult. They're going to like require like a little bit of like courage to get through. Like either you got to like suck it up and break up with the person and like have that talk and like maybe they're going to freak out and get really mad at you and God knows what. Or you've got to, you know, like do this other difficult thing or hide it or get the abortion or whatever. And so like, what if you could just take the easy way out? You could just push a button and then that person went away and didn't have to have any other tough conversations. I mean, it seems like the ultimate sort of passive aggressive, you know, right. It just makes her an extremely uh, unlikable character, like an absurdly unlikable character. But I feel like that would be tempting for a certain kind of person. And I could see if the story was she blocks him and then three days later, she feels terrible and unblocks him and says it's not your fucking like baby i don't it- want to get back together and she's in like another city and like that's how she dealt with it and then she's like kind of a jerk but it's understandable but the way that it happens where she um leaves him blocked for four years and the whole time he thinks he has a daughter that he's not allowed to see and she's letting him live with that no matter what you thought of the guy why would you let him live with that for all that time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, again, where I mean, Black Mirror is just, like, indulging in some extra cruelty because that seems to be the style of the show. And I would buy that if she seemed like a cruel character beforehand, but she doesn't. Like, uh, you know, the way we introduce them is they're all singing karaoke to each other, and the gimmick is, like, you think she's singing karaoke to him, but she's actually singing it to the Asian boss who's mm-hmm. sitting next to him. So they show that later in the story and you realize that the lyrics were referring to her feelings for him, not of the other guy. 
But like, she's not like a cruel person. She's like presented as being a nice person. Right. Well, and this is, I think, so, sort of the, the my big picture thought on all of Black Mirror, which is like, Black Mirror is asking two what if questions at the same time. It's asking, you know, what if we had some of this crazy speculative technology? And then also, what if the world was impossibly cruel? And I feel like I'd rather it was more just the first question without so much of the second one. Right. But, you know, with this show, you kind of get both. <laughs> right. And uh, that makes for, at times, a very entertaining show. But I agree with you. This is a place where maybe the character crosses a line that your average person would be a little more decent than this. You, you, I, I just don't, again, I don't see what she gets from it. Like, it's one thing to be cruel for a reason, but like, what benefit accrues to you to not tell the guy who thinks you have a daughter with him that you don't like i can understand doing it in a really passive aggressive shitty way like sending him an email through a third party channel or something so that you don't even have to unblock him or something Mm -hmm. but just disavow him of the idea that there's that he's got like a phantom daughter running around like that's just nobody deserves that no matter how, how big a jerk they were you know like it just seems like you could really hate someone and like a year in you'd be like okay by the way, you don't have a daughter. You know, I still don't want to talk to you, but you should know that it's not, it was never yours. Right. You know, like, I mean, that's just bare minimum human decency, I feel like. Well, what's really happening is that for plot reasons, they need to push him far enough that he then commits a murder. Because when he finds out that the child is not his, you know, he like hits her father in the head with a snow globe or something. Right. So I forget, what is the plot mechanism by which they the, the block stops working? Oh, she dies in a freak accident. She dies in a freak accident that causes the block to be raised. Right. Which, which causes the block on his... His daughter to be raised. Daughter to be raised. So four or years... Not his daughter. The, he thinks the his daughter. Girl he thinks is his daughter. So four years later, he decides to go see the daughter for the first time. So he goes up to the father's house where the story sees started. Sees that she's Asian. Sees that she's Asian. That's the, the reveal. He goes inside, he sees the father, and the father is sort of dismissive toward him, and he gets angry and, and kills the guy. That level of rage and murder, I guess, makes more sense because he was pushed so far. But although, you know, people will murder for less than that. I did not buy that he would commit a murder at that moment, especially since the guy kind of treats him jerkily, which, like, yeah. again, what... Would it cost the guy to be like, what, you didn't know? Instead of being like, get out of here, there's nothing for you. I mean, you know, it's like... Yeah, the father is like unnecessarily cranky I mean, and the first thing they said is he never liked him, so maybe this is just character consistency. It's not like, I'm not faulting them for it, but I do feel like this guy who just lost his daughter, a guy who used to love his daughter shows up, you know, he's confused... You don't need to be such a jerk to him, <laughs> you know, like you, you guys have at least one thing in common. You both miss this girl. You can talk about that for five seconds before you kick him out, you know, and I feel like that the whole murder is avoided, you know, and, it, and the thing is, yeah, they have to push him so hard to get him to commit this murder. But really, why are they? Why would she push him that hard? She really wouldn't, I think. Unfortunately, it makes it absurd, even though, you know, it's facilitated by this technology that they're speculating even with that technology, it seems like it still wouldn't get this bad. Now, a couple small things that I got to mention. Mm-hmm. Of course, this block goes on for years and years, and there's no apparent technology change. Four years, I think, yeah. And he's uh, still driving a car <laughs> through all of it. Just like every other you know, science fiction story, this has that same mistake of like, we've got insane cyber eyes and awesome emulated people and the cars don't dry themselves. Yeah, why isn't a cookie driving every car, right? Yeah. There's no way a cookie can't drive a car because a human can drive a car. Yeah. 
even if autonomous car technology totally fails and it's just like a complete mirage or it doesn't work like way out in this like snowy house where the that's right uh, where the is, dad lives because it's kind of remote it's right? remote english area so yeah terrible so maybe weather. it's not been mapped well enough for right. the, the current self-driving cars that but we're a, working but on. a cookie uh chauffeur is gonna work i mean yeah. that's gonna work exactly as well as a real chauffeur you know you think like over four years time that technology would would filter down to where people would be using it in that kind of way. But anyways, every sci-fi is making that mistake. Maybe hopefully less so. <laughs> hopefully the next wave of sci-fi movies has self-driving cars. I don't know. Right. Well, I feel like, yeah, there are some technologies that are ubiquitous in sci-fi these days that maybe didn't used to be. So maybe this one will get added to the list. Another thing that's small, and this is not a criticism, but they they show in in, you know, early on in the story when he's still getting along with his girlfriend. They use like a magic leap style interface, right? Where he's got like a kind of a menu, like a a radial dial type thing on the palm of his hand that he can kind of like rotate through like a circle of different apps and like select a camera. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting and incredibly underused. Like, so yes, that makes sense that with these cyber eyes, you can do that. And then we never see that other than that scene. It just felt a little bit like this was like a little bit of a nod to what this technology might do. And it like wasn't really fully fleshed out beyond that. Yeah, it's something where I think they had the right idea, but they didn't maybe take it far enough. Yeah. Um, so anyways, jumping back to the, the framing story again. So now at the end of the third like major episode, he's told his story and he's confessed to this murder. And at this point, if you're me at least, you're pretty much guessing what the twist of the framing story is going to be. I did not find this to be a surprise. I was like, no, I guess this is well. I was like, okay, so this is probably some kind of interrogation. And that confession was probably being teased out of him by John Hamm. And in fact, that is what has happened. And that's why like the setup is so vague. They're in this house and it's not really explained what job they do there. Right. And the five years thing is obviously a reference to the fact that he can speed up time in there. Although this is something I have a little bit of a hard time understanding. Cause I guess what he, he must have been doing it in chunks because he's saying five years in here with me. But of course, he wouldn't be in there with him because the way that they're portraying this is not that it's a, a copy of John Hamm in the computer talking to him, but that John Hamm has actually got his head inside like a kind of VR. Yeah, so John Hamm has not simulated himself. Correct. He is projecting himself into the simulated world. Using like a kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but like a VR uh, hood that also has like arm controls that you sort of bend over into. And yeah. <laughs> and then you're like in the other world. Right. So once he reveals, oh, this has been an interrogation all along, then yeah. John Hamm basically vanishes, right? Because then he, he sort of logs out. He like says sorry space. to the guy and then disappears. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little it's a little weird the setup for the interrogation. Again, I think it exploits kind of a fuzzy concept of the way memory works for a simulated person. So, so the murderer who's just confessed to a murder, the the real version of him uh, is actually sitting in a jail cell while this is all going on, uh, refusing to talk. And so, at some point, uh, the state apparently made him submit to a surgery or an operation to implant one of these cookie devices to read his brain. Then they put that into one of these like egg shaped things, and then they retain the services of John Hamm. Right. To use his skills as, you know, a... As a sim... Uh, sim trainer. Orientation expert. Orientation expert. Torturer, really. Yes. To try to extract uh, the information of this confession out of the copy. And apparently, you know, when your copy confesses, that's legally binding, right? That means that you... Right. Which that I can understand. I could see a future justice system that allows um, harsh interrogation of copies in mm-hmm. order to elicit court admissible 
confessions. We won't let you you be tortured, but we'll take a copy of you and then we'll torture that until it tells us the truth and then we'll use that against you. That makes a certain amount of sense to me. But yeah, I mean, the big problem here is why doesn't the Sim in the cabin remember when he was being arrested and told that he had to be cloned and all of that? Yeah, that makes no sense because the whole point you made the copy of him is you want access to his memory. So if his memory has been tainted to the point that he can be totally confused about who he is, where he is, then I feel like... You're, and how you're, could that be admissible? Because you're destroying the thing that you're trying to it get has access no credibility. To. Right. Yeah, so it's it's not unlike the earlier plot line uh, with the woman who, using the assistant in her house, where again she doesn't remember submitting to the operation that made the cookie. Right. Like, no, I think they plant that there on purpose so that it can make sense later so, that he didn't remember. But the problem is that that still doesn't make sense. <laughs> it still doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's that solution have, to that problem doesn't work. <laughs> there must have been a better way to do this, right? Yeah, I mean, the way to do it is not to have it be a twist. And instead, the guy knows he's being interrogated, and he's like, I'm never going to talk. And the but guy he gets is like, tricked into talking. Oh, you're going to talk, because we literally have forever, and I can do everything to you. And, like, you know, <laughs> that's really compelling. Well, that's the thing, is that, like, you know... <laughs> and then, like, you just spend the whole time trying to figure out how to get to this guy. <laughs> right, and I would believe that, you know, maybe sharing some of your own personal stories and using sort of standard persuasion tactics to gain trust would eventually get someone to confess. Yeah. I mean, that's how confessions basically work oftentimes. Sure. So I feel like they could have just done, they could have just put it at the surface level. And if they wanted to make it a little more surprising for the audience, the audience doesn't have to know immediately, like, all the details of the interrogation. That's right. It's just the character needs to understand what's going on. If the character on. knows and they never say the word interrogation, then they could honestly have probably played it very similarly. To well, because as did. an audience member, you're like, well, why doesn't this guy want to talk? Why is this guy refusing to talk? Right. And then later you realize, oh, he doesn't want to talk because he knows he's being interrogated. But he somehow kind of gets lulled in anyway, you know, which is what happens in real interrogation. Yeah. Right. So again, it feels like a little bit like lazy writing. Well, it's, I think it's just a, the style of, of, of Black Mirror in general is to always go for these twists. And sometimes in order to go for a twist, you tie yourself up in knots. You know, I mean, that's a Yeah, that's and a that's the Twilight Zone influence of this. Yeah. Right, and bad episodes of Twilight Zone are the same way, or sometimes Outer Limits, or other, other shows that are twisty in that way. When they are not done really well, they have the same problem. I think it's really hard to twist and be satisfying and not feel cheap. So then just wrapping this up, a couple of finishing things happen at the end, right? Like he gives the confession. So apparently he's going to be punished for that. Uh, then we snap out of the simulated world into the real world where we discover that the reason John Hamm has been playing the role of interrogator is because he's basically been forced into it as a way to sort of absolve himself of the crimes right. that he himself is culpable of, which include running this illegal pickup service. Right. This and is like, basically tying up all the other stories. So like he got yeah. in he his job was the middle one. Yeah. He got in trouble for the first one and he's paying back his debt in the third one. And even though he pays back his debt and successfully gets the confession, they still condemn him to being blocked by everyone. <laughs> Yeah. So that when he walks outside at the end of the show, everyone on the street uh, is uniformly blocked, which is, of course, again, an insanely draconian punishment for somebody who's already been cooperative and whose basic crime was, I guess, not reporting a murder and, I guess, and doing this. Just generally being a douchebag. Yeah. Where you, like, right. you know, videotape people. Right. No, I mean, his basic crime is that he's an unlikable person and right. he's punished in this way that, once again, is, like, cruel to a just absurd degree. <laughs> Although, because that one is, like, apparently a, a, a government order, yeah. you know, they have him in custody, 
uh, he doesn't really have any rights. If they have found him guilty of something, they could, you know, change the settings in his cyber eyes to block everything. So that's at least a plausible technology uh, if you have a really awful government, I suppose. Right, right. But it doesn't seem like it's in the government's interest to, I mean, essentially make you insane. I mean, you can't interact with society. You can't I, you interact know, with another human being ever again. When I think that's supposed to be analogous to how we handle sex offenders, right? Like, by, like... Right, right. You know, kind of making it completely impossible for them to, to reintegrate. I, I think that's what they're going for. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, I hadn't drawn that connection, but that makes sense. Well, and that's a that's a huge topic in and of itself. Yeah. And, and I think it's yeah. a credit to this episode that it, like raises so many interesting topics in, in oh, a yeah. relatively this, short amount of time. This is a really good one in the sense that it's full of interesting tech and it's really interesting to think about. But yeah, I mean, that basically covers it, right? I think we have gone all the way through the episode now. Yeah. So if you have seen this episode, I hope you found this an enjoyable discussion. And if you haven't seen it, you know, I don't think anything that we say here really ruins it. Like, yeah, there are twists in it, but most of what's fun about these episodes is just the interesting human way that they see the technology being played with and used. And I think they, they do a pretty good job of that throughout the series, but especially uh, in the Christmas special. Yeah. And in general, I wish there was more stuff like Black Mirror out there. So despite our criticisms, I give it a recommendation. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. All right. So let's wrap this up. Thanks for listening to the Review the Future podcast. You can contact us whenever you want at uh, feedback at reviewthefuture.com, but also via Twitter at RTF underscore podcast. We have an app on iTunes that you can use to get our show as well. We would love it if you shared our episode with people you know, people you think would like it and gave us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use. Yes. Thank you very much to the 26 people who have as of this recording, giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Yes, we appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's contacted us with uh, interesting emails and suggestions and questions. Keep them coming. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Yes. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.